This is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and there are three readings uh, in this Sunday that are very important. Remember, we're in a, a mini green season now, and that means that uh, when we're uh, thinking about the themes, they're like the big green season. They have to do with discipleship. But in the short Epiphany green season, Sundays after Epiphany, Uh, We really think more about how we make manifest the presence of Christ and what it means and what benefits and and, uh, assistance do we receive uh, as we seek to be faithful disciples. So today we hear from Jeremiah, the very beginning of uh, Jeremiah's book of the prophet Jeremiah. We have in the second reading the famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13 about love or as the dean of my seminary who taught the Paul class uh, used to say, the love passage. (laughs) So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then the gospel, where we continue uh, with Jesus in the synagogue and afterwards, uh, having read from Isaiah 61 and uh, talking about the great hope of return from exile, transformation, reconciliation, uh, the universal implications of uh, God's call to everyone and how we might understand that. And also this passage is tinctured with an experience that a number of us have had, maybe not all, but I bet most, that uh, if you've decided to go in a direction that's different than the one those nearest and dearest to you think you ought to go in, uh, you get yourself into some hot water. And uh, learning how to get get out of that, uh, it can be difficult. But it is true that a prophet is without, is without honor everywhere, but not without honor everywhere, but except in his hometown or her hometown. So uh, it's important to think about that and its implications for great emphasis in the church's life today. It's always been there, but it has sort of been under a bushel. And that is that uh, the default position on the part of Christian people uh, is and should be that of inclusion. And we're very concerned about how that might become present in the world. So from uh, Jeremiah, we hear today a a young Jeremiah. It's chapter 1. And he is speaking uh, to God, and he's saying, you know, I feel this prophetic uh, vocation. I am worried that I simply do not have the resources to be able to fulfill this obligation. I don't know what to do moving forward, and I am anxious. And God says to Jeremiah, don't worry. I will be with you. And here are some of the things that I'm going to do. And he talks to Jeremiah about that. And uh, in the course of this, he tells Jeremiah that he is going to be appointed a prophet to the nations. And we have an indication here then, of course, of the universal significance of this message. And further to the point, the people that he is going to prophesy to uh, are of the view, many of them, that this message has been delivered to one group, principally. And that is the people of the covenant. And he's going to be, uh, Jeremiah, if there's a prophet that paints the blue picture on a regular basis in his book, he's the guy. Uh, And he's painting it mostly to the people who have 
uh, perhaps wallowed too much or marinated in this sense of entitlement and privilege. So he has said, God has said to him, don't you worry about that. I'm going to be with you. So I would read this passage, if I were reading it and thinking about it, I would say in my own vocational aspirations in life um, that the presence of God has the ability to give me the uh, self-regulation and stamina that I need to be able to fulfill the obligations and challenges that are in front of me, that I can have the, there's the potential for me to be able to revivify my commitments and to feel some degree of enthusiasm as I do this over the long haul, so that as Jeremiah, it's the largest book in the Old Testament, so he's prophesying like crazy for a long time. And uh, he's been given some um, indication from the beginning that he's not doing this alone, right? Now, how would we say, when God speaks to Jeremiah, Father Hunt used to say to us at the Shota House, do you think he's speaking to Jeremiah like this? How does God come to you? Well, you may say not at all. But we could say that God comes to us in our thinking. John Macquarie, the great uh, Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford, in one of his books called Paths of Spirituality, he had a whole chapter on something called prayer is thinking. You know? So if you're waiting for some, you know, dramatic outside intervening event to uh, give you some confidence about your vocation and your future, it may not come in the way that you think. But clarity of thinking, clarification of thought, uh, the ability to have the internal self-regulation and stamina to meet these challenges and opportunities is an important way to understand the presence of the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians, we have the love passage. And the reason John Roof used to say that was because uh, it is perhaps one of the top three most frequently read readings at the marriage liturgy. And I think most people, without throwing cold water on this, uh, read that passage out of sentiment and believe that it has to do uh, maybe only with romantic love and uh, it just sounds good, and it's, you know, uh, the kind of thing that we, we like sentimentally. But Paul is getting at something that's much more important than that. Uh, you know, the Greeks had four words for love. The word that is used in this passage, which is the great chapter on love in the New Testament in one sense, is agape. We've talked a lot about that before. I looked up some definitions. I thought you might be interested. Agape means love such as in the term agapo, which means I love you. In ancient Greek, it often refers to a general affection or deeper sense of true love rather than the attraction suggested by eros. Agape is used in the biblical passage known as the love chapter. So John Roof wasn't too wrong, was he? Except he pronounced it different. 1 Corinthians 13, and is described there and throughout the New Testament as sacrificial love. Agape is also used in ancient texts to denote feelings for one's children and the feelings for a spouse. And it was also used to refer to a love feast. It can also be described as the feeling of being content 
or holding one in high regard. Agape was appropriated by Christians for use to express the unconditional love of God. So God feels that way about us all the time. And that's important. Now here are just the other ones. I'm I'm not going to read the long thing like that. Eros is passionate love with sensual desire and longing. Uh, However, Eros does not have to be sexual in nature. Eros can be interpreted as as a love for someone whom you love more than philia, which is the next one I'm going to talk about, love of friendship. It can also apply to dating relationships as well as marriage. Plato refined his own definition, although Eros is initially felt for a person, with contemplation it becomes an appreciation of the beauty within that person, or even becomes appreciation of beauty itself. And I think that's what Desmond Tutu meant in Marin City in the community center when I heard him over 20 years ago now when he said, if you and I are called in the religious tradition out of which I come, he said, to genuflect before the blessed sacrament or bow before the blessed sacrament, we should do that to one another. Because the presence of God is in everyone. Sometimes it's extremely difficult for us to see that. It's not easy. And so that's the, that's the thing. Murray Hammond, my great friend, and mentors said to me, uh, and he said, this is true for everybody, not just the clergy. If you p- persevere and uh, unite yourself with God's purposes for you, you will find it easier to love people. God will give you the graces to do this. And he turned out to be right. And he also used to repeat all the time uh, the old saw You know, we're called to love everybody. We don't have to like everybody. So that's true, too. Philea is friendship or affectionate love. It is dispassionate, virtuous love, a concept developed by Aristotle. And finally, storge means affection in ancient and modern Greek. It is natural affection like that felt by parents for offspring. Uh, It is rarely used in the ancient literature and then when it is almost exclusively as a descriptor of relationships within the family. It is also known to express mere acceptance or putting up with situations as in loving the tyrant. Not the big tyrant with a capital T, but maybe even within the family structure. What do you think about that, eh? So there's, there's something there. Paul is uh, getting, at the fa- getting at this. He's singling out the centrality of love because of this. At our baptism, we believe in our theology that we receive three infused virtues, faith, hope, and love. And of all of of those three, the one that is the most uh, outward directed is love. It's the one that that, that, uh, compels us to extend. Faith and hope are really internal uh, gifts or virtues, things that you over time learn uh, to be able to cultivate or at least recognize in your emotional, spiritual, and mental states. So when you do that, you begin to say, oh good, the interior processes are now beginning to uh, assist me uh, as I seek to extend, as I seek to express 
keep this agapastic love. <laughs> Sounds vaguely, you know, but there it is. So Paul is saying to us, this is something that we ought to uh, think about and focus on, and it is central to our self-understanding as uh, Christian people. In the gospel, Jesus uh, is still in his hometown, and he's, in the, he's finished in the synagogue reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And uh, we begin, for the first one's to me kind of general, gen, general and oblique, but it also can be tinctured with uh, the beginning of the big discount. Is, not, is this not Joseph the carpenter's son? Who is this? Where does he get this stuff? Right? Many years ago, I had to do something in a family context. And uh, I became an Episcopalian, and my family were not Episcopalians. And, of course, most of their friends were not Episcopalians. And I remember I got up, it had been a number of years, and spoke at, at some sort of thing. And one of my grandparents' friends came up to me and said, you know, that was very good. Do you do a lot of public speaking in your work? <laughs> you had to have been there. <laughs> right? So, attempting even then uh, uh, to do something that I did not ever hear of or understand at the time to remain non-anxious in the face of the reactivity and anxiousness of other people, I just blew her off. <laughs> but everybody has experienced that, and Jesus did, and he told them. And then he began to ratchet up, I think, his own anxiety. He was not exactly completely non-anxious in this, and he told them the score. And the score that he told them is what is the most important thing in this gospel. And that is that he rehearsed to them the history of salvation and the great prophets. And he said, you know, when the heavens were shut up those many years, there was a famine. Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. Not here. And when there was leprosy all over the place in Palestine, where, where he's from, the only person that was cleansed was Naaman, the king of Syria's big cheese, chief of staff, or whatever he was. And he uh, bathed in the Euphrates River and was cleansed. And even he received his healing with some... Uh, contempt by saying are not the four, where the big rivers where he's from in Syria far better and better rivers than this one and you're asking me to go in here and I'll be receive the healing and he got it anyway but what the people read in that was absolutely true in the synagogue and it was that he is saying to them you know what the saving message of God that I've announced reading from Isaiah 61 is for everybody it isn't just for you all here in Nazareth or for that matter, Jerusalem. God's saving embrace is for everyone, and these stories in the great sweep of the history of salvation, which are enshrined in our sacred scriptures, affirm this and say that this is exactly what this message is all about, and that you and I have a responsibility to be the ambassadors for that, right? We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. 
They were so angry, they uh, rushed him to a cliff, and they were going to throw him off. And it says in the story, I don't quite know what this means, but he passed through the crowd and went away. I don't know. Could he make himself disappear? Or what happened? He somehow escaped their grasp, and he did that. Maybe it's a symbol for the fact that um, the, the truth of God's saving power cannot be manhandled or eliminated that easily. And this is a story about that. Remember, we're reading about the, 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 the story of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, the beginning, after he was in the desert for 40 days and he was spending time with himself. It was a contemplative moment for Jesus who now comes back into the fray. And this is what he said to the people who uh, resisted him. So I guess the lesson this week might be um, God will provide you with the strength and the opportunity and the knowledge and the clarity of thinking to be able to meet the challenges and demands of your several vocations. All of us are challenged on a daily basis to love better and to understand love's power. It is the greatest agency for transformation, new life, whatever nuevo huevo term you wish to attach to it. Love is it. And finally, uh, have the courage of your convictions and of your vocation. And uh, remember that this gospel is a reminder that this great message is not just for a small group of people who are of like mind. It is for everybody. Amen. Amen.